Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. We've already heard some really, really good things. I hope that we'll continue to hear and receive from God. Uh, The word this morning comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. The title of the message is The Great Commission. And uh, this is another one of those sermons. It's going to happen a lot in this series because we're trying to hit the highlight reel of the Bible in a hundred different snapshots. It's going to be one of those sermons that you think you'll probably already guess where it's headed, but I think it's going to zig when you want to zag. And so I'm going to invite you to really engage with me and with God's word and open your heart and mind and listen, follow this message, because I think that it has a, there's something God wants to say to each of us that's really important for us to hear. I want to read the passage with you. Is it working? There we go. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's a good bet that most of us in this room came to identify ourselves as Christians by at some point in our lives making a decision for Christ. And what that means is at some point you, had, you made a conscious choice that you would receive in faith the free gift of salvation which Jesus was extending to us. And on that day, we believe it marked our passing from deadness to life, from being lost to being found and saved and born again. Does that make sense to you? That's probably the experience of many. Others, and this is also very valid, you grew up in a Christian home, and for as long as you can remember, you have known that there is a God, you have believed in him, your, your Sunday school teachers revealed God to you, and you never really fought it or doubted it, so you can't really name a point where you feel like you became a Christian. And that's okay, but for a great many people, our entrance into the community of faith revolved around what we call a decision. But if we're honest about it, the idea of a decision for Christ leaves a little tension brewing in us, doesn't it? Because if you're really honest about it, there's this widening gap between my decision for Christ and my discipleship with him. And maybe put another way, the question I'm often asking myself is, if I once decided for Christ, then how come... I'm not changing as much as I thought I would. How come the power that I feel needs to be there isn't always accessible to me? How come my life isn't as radically different today as I imagined it would be? Maybe viewed from another angle, we can look at it this way. If it's the leaders talking, if you made a decision for Christ, then how come today it doesn't appear that your life is defined by a journey in submission to him? We, and so here's another way of putting it, okay? I'm going to try to approach from as many angles as possible. Some people have put it this way. 
there is this tension because we need to move people from the camp of the deciders to the camp of the disciples. I'm really grateful to Marcus Marr, who's one of our interns, um, for recommending a book to me this past week. I grabbed it on Friday. I'm already halfway through it. It's been a fascinating read for me. It's, it's a book called The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. And uh, it's really helped challenge and provoke me in my exploration of this question, um, what is the gospel? And, and I began reading a, a good amount this past year on this very question, what is the gospel? And when you think about how many Christians or how many Americans have made a claim to follow Jesus, to decide for him, and then you measure another way and say, how many people are actively walking in discipleship with Jesus? There's a big gap in those numbers. If you believe the research of the Barna Group, it would seem that uh, at least 50% of the people who say they made a decision for Christ are really living what we might call nominal Christianity. They show up every now and then in church. They try not to kill anybody or kick babies and puppies as well as they can. They pay their taxes, and pretty much that's it. They, they mark themselves on all the census questionnaires as Christian. That's the religion they've picked. But beyond that, there is no real visible sign of vitality, no evidence in, within 30 minutes of conversation that one of the most important things going on in their lives is this relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I've, I've been exploring this tension between those who have decided and those who are now disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think that this book helped me to, to, to realize part of the problem, that the reason for that tension may be because our gospel is incomplete. Here's what I mean by that. I don't think the gospel we preached is in error, but I think the gospel we preached isn't enough. It doesn't reveal the full story. See, we've made the gospel in America entirely about my personal salvation, as if the greatest story in the entire universe is whether I end up in heaven or in hell. That is an extremely important question. It's a very important question, especially to me, because it matters to me where I end up. But if we reframe the entire gospel of the Bible story to center entirely on whether you are saved or you are not, it doesn't really reveal the whole picture, does it? And I think it may explain why Christianity in America looks the way it does, because we've invited everyone, hey, the only reason Jesus died, the whole point of this entire universe is that you would go to heaven. Do you understand that? And if we end there, then it's no wonder that once you get that in your pocket, there isn't really a high motivation to keep journeying forward in this continuing unfolding story of God and his kingdom and his invitation to each of us to live in it. Maybe what I'm trying to say is, is it possible that the church in America is a church that has a savior, but not a Lord? I want you to chew on that for a minute. Is it possible that the church in America has a savior we delight in because he saves us from hell? That's good news. But that's kind of where it stops. And maybe at some point what's happened is we don't also recognize that that Savior is our Lord. That in fact, Jesus Christ is not just the guy who died on a tree for us to go to heaven, but he's a king who reigns and is raising a kingdom. And there's a much greater story than my personal salvation. Don't get me wrong, your salvation and my salvation matters a great deal to God. But we deceive ourselves if we think 
that that is the entire end of the story. Our passage this morning is called often by people the Great Commission. It's the last conversation Jesus has with his followers after his resurrection before he ascends into heaven, right? It's one of the the last instructions that he gives before he departs. And classically, historically, this passage has been used as a mandate to send people out to the mission field. It's, the Great Commission is one of those passages that stirs a great deal of blood through the hearts of everyone who's gone on missions. You've probably heard it preached at lots of commissioning services, and I think it's right to use it that way. The emphasis there being very heavily placed on the word go. Go, therefore. And of course, just as we're ready to go, it's good to hear that God is saying go. And we're like, yeah, we're going. And we feel there's a great match between what we're doing and what God asks. But I think that if that's all we see in the passage, we really stripped it of its full power. This passage does a lot more than call us to go. It actually expands for us the picture of what the gospel is and reminds us that the journey of the Christian faith is not one simply of salvation, but of growing lordship and participation in the kingdom of God over which Jesus Christ, the risen victorious Lord, sits as undisputed ruler and king. Here's what I'm really trying to say. If you have experienced Jesus as Savior, but the idea of Jesus as your king and Lord is foreign, then your experience of the gospel is woefully incomplete. And so we're going to look at the Great Commission passage to get a fuller sense of what the gospel is and what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm going to develop a substantial part of this message around laying a foundation, and then I'm going to fly through quick points. There's a reason I'm going to be brief in those points. I am so sorely tempted to expound for three hours. There's just so much here. I'm going to be so brief. It gave me an ulcer hitting the delete key this whole week right in the sermon. But the reason I'm going to be brief is because at the, at, built into each one of those short points is a question that I believe God wants to ask you. And it's a pointed question that I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to drive into your soul because it's a question that doesn't deserve a short and superficial answer. It's a question meant to disrupt, disrupt your life, to push you a little bit, to make you really do some wrestling with where you are in your spiritual journey. And so I don't want to cloud that question with lots of text and context, but I want you to hear the question in its, its original setting very raw and then answer it in private before the Lord. Is that a deal? See you with me? All right. So the first thing we need to see in this passage, really, is this idea of Jesus being the king. Through much of his earthly ministry, Jesus had kept a pretty low profile. You know that, right? There were times when people tried to make him famous, put put him on their shoulders, and say, you got to be king. And you have have to understand, Jesus arrived on the earth during a, a season in Jewish life where there was this great desire for the Messiah to come. They wanted to rid themselves of Roman oppression. And so there were, before Christ had come, there had been dozens of false messiahs, guys who said, I think I'm the chosen one, grabbed the sword and said, let's get rid of these Romans and charge. And they charged and they were cut down like cattle, slaughtered. And so there was this, this tension among the Jews. We know the Messiah is coming. We're going to shed off the rule of Rome and we're going to be the preeminent empire in the world again. 
and a Messiah will lead us. But so far, all these duds. It's like 4th of July. You buy all these fireworks in Indiana, and every one you light, it's a dud. You're like, come on! We want to see the big one. Bang! And so here comes Jesus, and he's doing stuff that none of the guys before him ever did. He's performing miracles. He speaks with authority. When he talks about the word, he doesn't talk like a politician, but like someone who maybe has the authority that comes from God to talk about this stuff. And they're amazed. And right away, their sense is, we want to make this guy our leader. He could be the one. And so they tried numerous times to hoist him up and make him the rally point, and he refused. In fact, when he did miracles and everyone was excited, he would often say to his followers, Shh! Don't tell anybody about this yet. And so as a result, what we see is that Jesus in his earthly ministry was on the down low. He was, he was very quiet, low key. In fact, he preached a message of meekness and he lived it out so thoroughly that when he was wrongfully accused and put to death in the most horrible manner, his disciples, his friends watched and not once did he defend himself. Not once did he speak up and say, no, you can't do this. This is wrong. It's unjust. He meekly went to an unjust death that was horrible in the way it was carried out. And yet here he was, risen from that grave, alive again, standing in front of them in flesh and blood. You could even poke poke your index finger through the nail holes in his hands. And now he's saying something very different than what he said in his earthly ministry. He's no longer telling them to keep quiet. He's not talking about meekness. Now what he says to them is, listen, I have just beaten death. I have clearly demonstrated to all of you that I'm not just another man or a rabbi like the people all around you. I am God himself. And you need to know that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That word all is so strong, it's hard for the English word to capture the expansiveness of the Greek word all. There is no category, no setting in which Jesus does not have the authority. He has authority in spiritual realms. He has authority here on this flesh and blood, brick and mortar earth. He has authority in the underworld and in the the kingdom to come. In every place, at every level, Jesus Christ was given authority over everything. He had served his father and humanity faithfully in a way that Israel never could, never had. In fact, the story of Jesus rightfully completes the story of Israel. There are so many parallels between the story of Israel as a nation and the story of Jesus as as the, the Messiah. But Jesus succeeds where Israel and where you and I have always failed and will fail. And because he succeeded, because he was victorious, God then, upon arising him from death, gave to him all authority over everything. That's language of kingship. I don't know if you understand that. But when a a person stands in front of you and says, listen, all authority has been given to me. I command everything. There is nothing you can conceive over which I do not have rightful authority. That is the language of kingship. It is not the language of simply a suffering servant. One who has been put to death for our sakes. It is also the language of one who has earned the right to be undisputed king over everyone. 
That when you relate to him, when you regard him, when you think of him, you think not simply of a bruised and pierced sacrifice, but a victorious, powerful, risen king who has all authority over everything, everything in his hands. Most of our focus has been placed on the Good Friday story. We talk about Jesus almost entirely in terms of his cross, his grave, and his resurrection. And even that, the resurrection gets very, very little airtime. Mostly it's the cross, right? I mean, because how do you, how do you wear, make a necklace out of a resurrection? I mean, you can't. So we make this, the cross this big central symbol of our faith, and rightly it should be. But it betrays something. It shows us that we only zoom in on one narrow sliver of the story of Jesus' life. And we're missing out on some very, very important aspects. Bear with me as I quickly show you the fullness of the story of Jesus. There is his eternal existence that before time began, he was always with the Father. He was always God. And then the incarnation, he enters the world in the form of a human being. He comes to us, though, as a baby, not as this giant, muscular, titanium, adamantium, skeletoned superhero. He comes as a helpless baby. And then he lives this entire human life. He identifies fully with every experience we have. He's patient. And then he's put to death in the most horrible way, and he died for us and instead of us. He did this for us. And then he was buried, and that's important. We don't talk much about that. But he experienced the separation from God, which we all deserve, which would be our destiny forever if he hadn't stepped in. That period of burial where he's separated, where God had turned his back on him, that was a horrible period in the life of Jesus. But then victory comes, and he arises from the grave, and he's risen And he makes himself public now. No longer is he keeping everything on the DL. Now he's gone public. And he's saying to them, go and spread over the world. Tell the story. This is no longer a secret kingdom because the king is here now. It's like that final episode in the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. There's no need to hope in a future. It's here. The king is before you. The kingdom is upon us. It's no longer a secret. And so now here, Jesus establishes his kingship, and then he ascends into heaven. They watch him float up into the clouds. What a sight that must have been. And in that, he's establishing that when you remember me, don't remember me bruised and broken on a cross alone. When you remember me, remember me as the king who ascended to sit on the right hand of God the Father. And then in every other instance where the gospel is preached in scripture, this is included. That one day, all mankind will give an account of their lives before this king, and he will return, and he will make all things new, and he will sit as the undisputed ruler over everything. This is the whole story of Jesus. This is the part that we so often focus on, and we miss all the other parts of the Jesus story, and we call those three points the gospel, when in fact, the good news is the entire story of Jesus. The fact that he is king, and he is coming back, and all this filth and junk and brokenness is going to be banished, and all things will be new, and he will finally rule the way he always had meant to rule. He will be our God And we will be his people. That, my friends, is the gospel. It's the full story. 
And failing to see that explains the church in America today. A church where once you get your fire insurance policy tucked squarely in your back pocket, you can go on living exactly as you always did because it was always about me getting out of hell and into heaven. But what happened to the kingdom? What happened to Jesus Christ, the great king over all of creation, whose rightful authority is exercised and made beautiful in the church and in the way that we walk as disciples of the king? Are you with me so far? I'm, I'm saying some provocative stuff, man. So I hope you're awake and really processing this. Jesus is king, and he's establishing his kingdom. And every kingdom, every king has subjects. And so in this great commission, Jesus looks at those who are already his subjects, his disciples, and he says, here's what I want now. I am the risen king. Go and populate my kingdom with subjects. Don't simply go around and make converts. Make disciples. He never said, go therefore and make decisions of all the nations. Make converts, make saved people. He said, go and make disciples. And to understand that word, we've got to look at the totality of Matthew's gospel because he's, he's the only disciple who actually recorded that phrase, make disciples. What did he mean by that? What does it mean to make disciples? Really, the word disciple, I think, is another word for the subject of the king. Think about it. We don't live in a monarchy. We live in a democracy where we're citizens. But in a kingdom, everyone is a subject of the crown. And the, the king on the throne has a complete and total authority over my life, even whether I live or die. This is the accurate picture of the kingdom of God, is that Jesus Christ, the king, is raising for himself a kingdom. And the invitation is not simply to be saved, but to become a disciple, to walk with him as a subject of the crown. So that's the long setup. Without understanding that, you will not understand the Great Commission text. Okay, you won't. In light of this, then, we see in this these four or five verses here, a very clear picture of some of the reliable marks of what a disciple is. What does it look like to be a subject of Jesus Christ the King? What does it look like for your Christianity to not simply be an insurance policy for the afterlife, but life in a kingdom as a subject of the King? What does that look like? And I want to point out some marks, and this is where we're going to speed up I'm going to go fast. It's going to be short, but you've got to really engage here because these things are for all of us. The first mark, I think, of a subject of the king is availability. Look what it says. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Earlier in Matthew 26, <clears throat> it's recorded that by prearrangement, Jesus, in the days just before his crucifixion, was gathering his disciples and teaching them. And in that period, he very clearly predicted all the events that were to come. And this is the crazy part, is they act surprised, but he clearly spelled out exactly what was going to happen. And when it happened, they still act like, what, what, the, what just happened? It's like, well, what just happened is everything I exactly told you was going to happen, but they weren't listening. 
And in that clear prediction, one thing he said is, when I am risen from the dead, I want you all to come meet me in Galilee. It was a long journey, at least a good day's journey north. I want you to go there, that place where I first recruited you, that special place, that geography, where we have our earliest memories together. I want to have a reunion after I come out of my grave. I mean, this is crazy talk, right? When I'm not dead anymore, I want you guys to meet me at that place where we first gathered, on that special mountain where we so often gathered for retreats and we prayed. Meet me there on like Monday or Tuesday or whenever after the resurrection. And so it was clear that they had made a prearrangement for this reunion. And to their credit, look what it says. Where did they find themselves when the Great Commission was given? The 11 had gone to be in the place that Jesus had told them to go. That's such a simple picture for me of what availability means, what discipleship means. At the most basic level, discipleship is this. Are you where you're supposed to be? That's a pretty philosophical question. I'm not, yeah, yeah, I'm in church, man. Tell it to somebody else who's sleeping. But look, I'm asking you in a deeper way. Situationally, spiritually, are you available? Are you where you're supposed to be? Do you go as a regular practice where Jesus the King asks you to go? Another way of saying it is, does this describe your life? Is your life a constant boxing match with God? Go. I don't want to go. That's what it's like raising my children sometimes. Brush your teeth. Ah. Parents, do you like that sound? Ah. Are my kids the only kids who do that? And parents, just show me. Any other parents have kids who do that? Right. Do you like that sound? Because you know what? That's a sound many of us make to God all the time. Child. Please, it's for your own. Go, do this. <laughs> Is that what your soul sounds like to Jesus? I'm not saying that to humiliate you, to just guilt you, but I'm really asking because if he matters to you, it's worth wrestling through this. Is that what you sound like in the spiritual realms to the ears of your heavenly father? He can use circumstances. He can use leaders and other people. He can even use your own internal voice to tell you where he wants you to be. The real point is, are you listening for it? Is your ear tuned for the voice of your king so that your life ends up in the place where it's supposed to be? Are you available to your king? How many life-defining moments were missed because we weren't at the place we were meant to be? If they had not gone to that mountain in faith, this life-shaping call, this commission, would never have been heard. And who knows that they would have just been anonymous, bored, discouraged fishermen for the rest of their earthly days. Are you available to Jesus? And if you are not available to him, if he doesn't have you, then who does? Who would rightfully be described as the true king of your life today? Keep in mind, none of this is about guilt. You can't just fix this problem. But what I'm asking you to recognize is the whole gospel is not just that you're saved, but that you have a king. And you had better really begin 
wrestling with this idea that you and I have a king. The next thing, the next mark of the disciple or the subject of the king is worship. Look what it says. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I imagine when I read that, that they were walking down this dirt path up the mountain. They saw him, and then they all, they fell to their knees, and they worshipped. We use the word worship like it's an action verb all the time. Hey, are you, are you ready to worship? I mean, sometimes, you know, even the praises, are you ready to worship? We're like, yeah, let's worship. Let's do this thing called worship. But before worship can be an action, it must always be seeing something. Before worship can be an action, it is always a seeing something. When they saw him, they worshipped him. It wasn't an instinctive posture that just said, well, this is, this is our boss. We better actually, you know, like, you know how it is in Korean culture. Whether you respect a person or not, if they're older, you just go, hey, you jerk. <laughs> Hello, you pig-headed man. I hate you. That's the kind of respect. That's, it's not that kind of instinctive positional worship. They saw him. And listen, what are they seeing? They're seeing the man they watched horribly tortured, beaten, broken, pierced, cut, dead, standing in front of them. I don't know about you, but if you're paying attention, that's got to mess you up a little bit. You're not going, oh, hey, Jesus, what's up? Where you been? You're like, what? How is it possible I'm even seeing you right now? How is it possible? It's only possible if you are not an ordinary person. It's only possible if you are so far beyond ordinary, I don't even have a category to understand you. Every act of worship is an expression of the worthiness of the one we're seeing. In fact, you know that the word worship began as the word worship. It is really at its root definition Worship is ascribing worthiness or worth to something. We worship many things. We ascribe worth to many things. But our highest worship belongs to Jesus Christ, the King. If you are a Christian, or that is how you designate yourself, one thing you cannot be unclear on is this. Your highest priority is to see and ascribe to Jesus, the King, the worth which he has inherently and the worth which he has earned. It says, interestingly, that some doubted. I mean, you've got to really be committed to doubting to doubt at that place. I mean, seriously, you're seeing it with your own eyes. And it's like, yeah, but who knows? Like, he, maybe he had a twin we didn't know about. I, I don't know who this guy is. Some doubted. And what that tells me is that you can hang out in Jesus' presence and not really see him and who he is. I think that's happening in churches all over this country right now. I think it's happening in this room right now. Being in this place doesn't automatically make something true of us. Being in the physical presence of Jesus, even flesh and blood, we're here imagining his presence, believing in faith, even seeing him in flesh and blood does not confer to you anything automatically. It is possible to be with him and to not be with him at all. 
To look at him and only see a man, only see the head of a religion, and miss the worthiness of who he really is, fail to ascribe to him the worth that is owed to a king. The only way to know if you see him is to really examine your life. Do you, when you look at Jesus, really see who he is? Because if you did, much of the Christian life would unravel naturally. It would explain itself. It would live itself out in you. Let me give you another way of asking this question of yourself. Do you find that the only time you ever agree to serve is when other people wrestle you a little bit? Come on. You'd be so good at just go. Do you find that you're often in that position where unless people wrestle with you, you don't really give God much? Do you find in your heart, and this is not about guilt or trying to weasel some more money out of you, but I'm asking you this for you. Do you find that when you're invited to invest financially in God's kingdom, it's a real struggle? I can tell you honestly, for years, it was so hard for me to write my offering checks. Because I thought about the opportunity cost of it, and when I tithed, what I realized was this monthly tithe is the car payment on a really kick-butt car. I'm giving Jesus a car every single week, man. That's what I feel like. Not just any old car, a decent car. Not a Fiat 500 or some clown car. A good car. And is that the way you wrestle each time that pen comes to the checkbook? Because let's face it, money is the simplest battleground to define. I mean... Once we get past money, we can talk about the real fight. But money is the first line of defense. And look at how you fight there. Be honest. Do you find it excruciating sometimes to participate with him in the stuff that matters? Because if that's where your heart is right now, I'm not simply trying to make you feel guilty. I don't need to do that. I'm just trying to reveal to you, cough. And you're like, that doesn't sound right. Something's off. Because if you saw him you wouldn't be fighting at that level. When you see him, you will respond. No one will need to force you. No one will have to wrestle and argue with you. You will see him, and the subjects of the king, the true subjects, will bow because they see. Then there's belonging. And this one, I think, is easy to dismiss, but for some of us here in this place, we really need to hear God on this one. Because the truth is, maybe you had painful experiences in your life that made you always feel like the odd man out, the outsider, the outcast. And so you've developed this view of yourself and this habit of living where you never really let yourself belong to anything. You're always the free agent when others stand, you're, you're going to sit. <laughs> Forget it. Stand. Everyone's standing. Bunch of lemmings. Don't you have a mind of your own? Could it possibly be that they do have a mind of their own? They used it to actually be together? To stand as one? And if your whole experience in the church, in being a Christian, has been about being a free agent, lone ranger, I'm always, 
Like David Carradine's character, he wanders through the wilderness forever searching for... Is that you? Because if it is, then you don't actually live in a kingdom yet. And maybe pain got you there, but you can't let pain keep you there. To be a disciple, a subject of this king, is to join together with him and with the rest of his subjects in a kingdom life. It doesn't mean to be a conformist, but it means to make unity a very, very high priority in your life. Jesus says to them, therefore go, and you'll love how I'm just completely ignoring the therefore go and make disciples part because that's to me a given. It's already established what we're doing. We're now describing what it looks like. Make disciples of all nations. And here's the inaugurating event for them. Baptism. What does baptism signify? It signifies in a very public way that I identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we do baptism at our church, by dunking. None of this sprinkling nonsense. Okay? Uh Uh-uh. That's just lame as can be. We want to dunk you because when you break under the water, that is identifying with the burial of Jesus. And when you break forth from the, spirit, from the surface and you gasp in that air, it is identifying with his resurrection. In baptism, what we say is, I believe that what Jesus did, he did for me. I accept it. I identify with it. But then we do it publicly, not, not secretly, as a way of saying, in doing this, I identify with and I belong to him but I also belong to all the other subjects in his kingdom. In other words, there is no such thing as solitary Christianity. Many have tried it. Some have even written books attempting to describe it. It cannot be done because this faith is impossible to fully embrace by yourself. And if you have managed your sense of belonging rather than surrendering to it, And I have something to tell you. You stand in defiance of the calling of Jesus Christ. If you only let people get as close as you're willing to let him get. If you manage every relationship, every boundary. If that's what you do. Then you're missing out on the entire picture. If you only go as far as you're willing to go here. And you resent when people try to goad you to come further. You're not really there in that place called discipleship. Rather than feeling guilty about it, I think it's important for you to explore why you have pitched your tent and made a home in that place so far outside the camp. I think it's important to explore the pain. Come talk to me or another pastor or one of the counselors. We have great counselors at our church, professional counselors, go talk to them. Explore together. Talk to your brothers and sisters. Why have I let pain shape the entire way I interact with God's kingdom? Why am I always alone? See, there is a shallow way and a deep way to belong to someone. And I don't think Jesus ever called us to belong to an organization or a tribe. He called us always to belong to him. Another way of saying it is, it is maybe, here's here's the way I would say it. It's my first and innermost layer of identity. 
When I think about how I see myself, how I describe myself to others, if you can imagine like the layers of an onion, as you peel them away, you get to the middle, the core, where you can peel no longer. What's that inner circle of your onion? How do you think of yourself? What is the deepest loyalty that you will fight for? When someone says, who are you? And you dip into that that well, what do you come up with? How do you answer that question? I think that the journey of a subject is to be proud to belong. I can tell you right now, even as a citizen of the U.S., I told you this before, every time I travel to a foreign land, I rock that U.S. passport like it's a force field, man. Like, leave me alone, American. Step off. Uh Uh-uh. Don't mistake me for one of these guys you could bully. I got the U.S. and a bunch of nukes behind me. Watch out, man. There is such a pride, I feel, in being a citizen of this country. And I think for very good reason. How much more should your heart resonate with great pride and loyalty for this kingdom to which we belong? Let me give you this last thing, obedience, man. This is a hard one. See, Jesus never measured discipleship in terms of knowledge. When I talk discipleship with other people, sometimes they ask me, what are you reading? Are you memorizing verses? It's as if discipleship in America is a program of study. Right? A program of study. If you know more, then you will be more. There's no way that's true. Do you know how many unhealthy doctors I know? Do you? Some doctors are among the most unhealthy freaks I have ever met. Did you flunk medical school? Don't you know what you're doing to yourself will kill people? Do you know how many pastors I know who don't tend their soul? Just don't have any quiet times. There's no prayer life. Do you know how many parents I know who don't like children? See, knowing something doesn't mean anything. Jesus always defined discipleship this way. Go and teach them to obey everything I have commanded. I've said it before. I will say it again. We American Christians are overeducated so far beyond our obedience. It's shameful. If we all die today not learning a single new thing about the Christian faith, what we already know would indict us because we have not yet lived what even we already know. And yet we buy more books and clamor for more conferences. We seek more knowledge. We want another good sermon. It's okay to be hungry to learn. But listen, the way that Jesus always measured followership, citizenship in his kingdom, it was never by how much we knew, but by what we did. Because in the end, that's what ultimately reveals faith is not what I'm willing to memorize, but what I'm willing to commit my life to. This is not legalism. Don't be afraid of a gospel of works. You will not find it here. It is not legalism or moralism because we're not saying you obey the commands of Jesus to be saved. We will never say that at this church. That is anathema. It's heresy. We can never say that from the scriptures. But what we are saying 
is that our obedience to every command of Jesus is an expression of worship and loyalty to our king. It is a kingdom issue, not a salvation issue. Yes, you are saved by grace and only by grace alone. But if that's where your journey ends, shame on you. The grace you received was a false grace. Because you got a savior, but you didn't get a king. You used Jesus so you could sleep at night. But he has no access to you. And when he does the census of his subjects, it is likely you may not be counted among them. Because salvation is not found by using Jesus to scratch that itch on our back that says, where will I go when I die? Jesus is Savior because he is Lord. Do you understand that? Because he is the king, he has the ability to save you. Do we receive one and not the other from him? The aim of obedience and discipleship is not to become a better Christian. Any more than the reason that I'm a good husband is because my goal in life is to be the best husband, to win the husbandry gold medal. The reason I'm a good husband is because I'm smitten by a particular woman. And my heart's desire for the rest of my life is to honor that one particular woman. Her name is Jeannie. She is my wife. I could care less if you think I'm a good husband or not. My goal is to be loyal to her. For me, marriage is a relationship issue. It's a loyalty issue. It's not a skills issue. It's not a character issue. And that's why we obey Jesus. Yes, we're able to do it because of grace received. I don't want to get anybody in the gospel coalition mad. Listen. We can obey Jesus because he has paid the price for us. But we're missing out on this. One of the great, powerful motivators for obeying Jesus is because he is our king. And that's just an awesome thought to me. I have a king. And that awakens somewhere deep in me the rumblings of a latent knighthood that American life just squashes in me, man. A nobility, a desire to sacrifice, to stand with, to fly a flag, to charge the walls of the castle. It awakens in me something which God deposited when I was made. I want to serve a king. It's in me. And I'm so thankful that I have a good king to serve. The gospel, the good news, can never be distilled simply to the difference between heaven and hell. It is the full story, the majestic story of Jesus Christ who is coming again and will reign as king. We will all give an account of our lives to him. And so I want to ask you those questions one more time. Are you available to your king? Listen, is your life, are you, and deal with this today, are you where He's told you to be. And I hope your heart's response is not, dang, I'm not. But I don't know, but I'm going to check this out because I want to be. Let me ask you, do you, when you look at Jesus, do you really see him? Do you see his worth? Do you understand that he's your king?
Or is it an arm wrestling match every time Jesus commands something of you? Do you belong to him? And by extension, then, do you really belong to his people, his kingdom, his church? Have you abandoned yourself to this relationship? Surrendered yourself to it? Or are you managing it? Are you guarding it? Are you maintaining it? Let me ask you this last question. Are you living in obedience to your king? Many a Sunday, I know this, you have walked out of this building with your heart stirred by a heavy conviction. Something you heard in this place got through to you. And you felt it. It was churning in you. But as you walked out and picked up your wings at Hooters or Buffalo Wild Wings and you turned on the Bears game and something else happened and that heavy conviction dissipated like a slow leak in a tire. And as a result, the voice of God so clear in this room became muted out there. And that conviction never became a response. And each time that happens to us, our lives depart from the pathway of discipleship. And we become gods unto ourselves. I want to encourage you, if something you heard here today agitated your spirit, even made you feel guilty, if it's a, if it's a guilt that comes from the Holy Spirit, good. Use it. But if God did something in you today, it's really important for you to know this. As you walk out of here, God is expecting for your own health, your own spiritual life, that you will actually do something about that conviction today. There's no credit for feeling things strongly. There's only a giving of an account for what we did and did not do. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.